Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 76. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today I interview Sean Fong. Sean is a brown belt from Gracie Baja, an athlete, coach, and motivational speaker. He was an Australian Paralympic swimmer who set a world record in the 100-meter butterfly short course in para swimming, and he is also a gold medalist at the Abu Dhabi World Pro of Para Jiu-Jitsu. Besides sharing his inspirational story of what happened to him when he was only seven years old, that resulted in missing two of his limbs, he talked about courage not being the absence of fear, but feeling the fear and doing it anyway. He shared his competition mindset, which is very aligned with the message of the BJJ Mental Coach Program. He also talked about the importance of knowing your strengths and weaknesses. My takeaway from the interview came when he talked about the best advice that he has ever received, which came from his mother and inspired me to title this episode, Finding Your Gift. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on the topic of finding your gift. Stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Oos. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free Jiu-Jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Sean Fong. Sean is a brown belt from Gracie Baja. He's an athlete, coach, and motivational speaker. At seven years old, everyone thought Sean's life was about to end before it had even really begun. He was placed in an induced coma, lying flat on a Fijian hospital bed and being read his last rites. But three days later, he woke up. Sean was left fighting for his life as a child after he fell under the wheels of a moving train. Out playing with his brother, he jumped on the moving train before getting caught on sugarcane and slipping underneath a carriage. His right leg was severed and his left arm was crushed and later amputated. Now 37 years old, Sean has overcome incredible odds to achieve the kind of goals in his life. He was an Australian Paralympic swimmer who set a world record the 100 meters butterfly short course in para swimming, and he's also a gold medalist at the Abu Dhabi World Pro of para jiu jitsu. Sean lives by this quote from his Facebook page I don't think that missing two limbs affects the quality of my life in terms of me being happy. It'd be easy for me to say, nah, I can't do this because I only have one arm and one leg. But to me, it's an excuse I'm giving myself. I find a way. I refuse to let my disability define my life. He hopes that his journey encourages you and people all over the world to fulfill their own dreams. Sean, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a huge pleasure for me to be a guest of yours. Absolutely. So now let's, let's start talking about jiu-jitsu. How jiu-jitsu show up in your life? Um, jiu-jitsu showed up in my life relatively late. I found jiu-jitsu when I was 30 years old. So um, I was born in 1982. And as far as I can remember, I've always been a fan of martial arts. From a very young age, Bruce Lee movies, Jackie Chan movies, like I love that kind of stuff. Um, the late 80s, early 90s was when the world was introduced to Mike Tyson. Right? And he was something like a force of nature the world had never seen. Um, I remember like my dad, my uncles, and like 15 other people all in one room to watch a VHS tape of Mike Tyson just cleaning up the heavyweight division. Um, so I've always been inclined uh, to martial arts. Um, it's always been a, an appealing thing for me. Um, actually, the group of friends that I had in high school, I think the UFC came out in 1993. We used to meet at one of my friend's houses and watch all the old UFC and Pride videos. And him and his brother, they still train in Sydney, Australia, actually. They first showed me what close guard was when we were teenagers. But I had my accident when I was seven. I lost my left arm at the elbow and my right leg almost at the hip. So even though I thought it was really cool, I thought it was very fascinating, I didn't think I could do arm bars or triangles, right? So I didn't think about it until too much later. So I used to swim for general fitness. Eventually I got into the, the Australian swimming team. Um, but then after a few years, I injured my shoulder. I had a partial tear in my rotator cuff. So that was, that was devastating for me at the time. But when I look back at it now, it was a good thing because it led me to jiu-jitsu. So I know a lot of swimmers that when they stop swimming, because they get used to the lifestyle and the heavy training schedule, they stack on the weight. Yeah, I know guys that have gone from 70, 80 kilos to well over 100 kilos. So I wanted to keep up with the active lifestyle and, um, I thought I'd give jiu-jitsu a try. When I looked it up on the internet, uh, the school was about five minutes drive away from my house. Right. Um, if I can, let me, let me share this story with you. Absolutely. Um, I've done boxing before. I've done Muay Thai, kickboxing for a couple of years. And I was so nervous. I was so scared and so intimidated to try jiu-jitsu. And for a lot of people that know me, that's probably going to be surprising because now I'm a brown belt and they don't know this story about me. Because I've always watched the UFC, I've always been a fan, I was really worried that when I turned up to the academy, people would laugh at me. I really thought the instructor would be like, dude, what am I supposed to do with you? Like, you can't play guard, you can't do a sweep, you can't do, do an armbar. I looked at that website for two days before I finally built up the courage to actually give them a call and say, listen, I want to come to try. Right? I called them up, asked them if I could book an intro class, um, they were really nice. They said to come on down. Yeah, we'd, we'd make it happen. I turned up and everybody was so friendly. Yeah, I was expecting like meatheads or whatever. And everybody was really nice. They gave me a gi to try on. I felt like Man, this is really cool. They took me to the back room and the instructor was fantastic. Yeah. He showed me like loop jokes that I could do with one arm. And he showed me like, a normal plata, even though I might not be able to lock the normal plata, I might be able to use it as a sweep. And I'll never forget, he said, man, you're, you're already athletic. 
there's going to be some situations in jujitsu where your dis your disability is an advantage, and we can use that to your you know we can use it to frustrate people. You're you're very you're going to be very unorthodox. Let's use that to our advantage. Man, I came out of that first class feeling like ten foot tall and like <laughs> Superman. The head instructor of the academy was sitting to the side. When I came off, he was like, "Hey, how how are you?" Um, Man, can I ask you what happened to you? I think we ended up chatting for about 20 minutes. You know, what happened to me, and he shared a little bit about his story. And he told me about how jujitsu had helped him through some of the in his life. And I thought, wow, like, what a nice guy. He didn't need to share all that with me. I went out to the main area where there was a group class, and I was watching the, the instructor break down the techniques. A brown belt got up off the mats, came to where I was sitting, and he's like, hey, how are you? I just wanted to let you know, I work with people with disabilities. I'm an occupational therapist. And this is probably one of the best things that you can do. If you need any help with anything at all, yeah, if it means you getting into the sport and staying in it, I'm here for you. You just let me know. And the whole environment was so nice. It was I was totally caught off guard. And I was like, this place is magic. Yeah? I've never been in, in an environment where all these people are offering their time and their energy. And they don't expect anything in return. I signed up straight away, bought my gi, and I've been doing jiu-jitsu ever since. That's incredible, man. And I want to give some props here to you when you, when you said it built up the courage to uh, face your fear and anxiety or the fear that you don't know what's going to happen. But you went there anyway. And I give major props to this because I guarantee you right now, Sean, that there's people listening to the podcast, people that have trained jiu-jitsu before. Most people that are listening to me, for the most part, may have some exceptions, but for the most part, they either train or have trained jiu-jitsu before. And I guarantee you there's someone at home that maybe got caught with life and busy and, and has been thinking about training for a long time, but now they're intimidated. Man, I'm going to go back there. It's going to be rough to get back. I'm going to be... Um, I'm going to get beat up or whatever, you know, because I'm so far behind. And... Uh, I love you mentioning you sharing this because if you listener, if you are in a situation that you're taking a break or haven't been training and keep saying that you're going to get back to it and just face that anxiety, that discomfort of like, man, and just go there and just put a visit. No matter where you at, go visit maybe the place that you used to train. Maybe if you don't, you know, not by the place you used to train, go visit, go check out some places. And everything that you mentioned it's so true. I mean, for the most part, you know, uh, you're going to go to a jiu-jitsu school. It's going to be a friendly environment. Of course, I cannot say for everyone, you know, but for the most part, yes, it's going to be everyone trying to help out. So this is a great. So for people there that you're not training, man, that's a, a good uh, inspiration for you to kind of get back to and just build up the courage to say, you know what, go in because I know and even friends of mine that struggle with anxiety that will be sitting in a parking lot and then i'm like i can't go in i gotta go back home you know what i mean so that happens very often more often than people realize and just having the courage to give the first step and when they leave they're like man i'm so glad that i that i got in you know sometimes they're like should i go or not but when they do they feel so much better i do uh if i can say say this I think like if a lot of people have that attitude, it's because they either don't understand what jujitsu is about or they 
I think it's an ego thing. Mm-hmm. I think um, if I had the attitude where like, well, I've already achieved you know, local, state, national, international titles in swimming. I'm an athlete. I'm supposed to excel at this thing. I think it's hard for a lot of people to start from scratch again. Yeah, I think it's a lot of. I think it's very difficult for a lot of men to start at the lowest rung on the ladder. Yeah, you're at the very bottom of the totem pole, right? And I'll, I'll bring this up again in in some of your later questions, but I think it's important to remember that courage doesn't mean an absence of fear. Yeah, I think courage is even though you do feel the fear, you do what you're supposed to do anyway. Yeah. I often think that if I would have given in to my, my fears or my insecurities on that day and never actually went into the jiu-jitsu gym, my life would be very different. Absolutely. That's doing swimming, maybe I'd be doing something else. But because of all the rewarding and fulfilling stuff that has happened to me since in my life, I'm very glad I took that step that day. Yeah. So how do you feel now jiu-jitsu relates to life? Uh, I could go deep with this question. I, I love how people say that jujitsu is a great equalizer. Um, it doesn't matter what your profession is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, where you come from, what your religious beliefs are. Ultimately, we're all the same underneath our geese. Um, all you have when you step onto the mats are your physical and mental capabilities, your fitness, your determination, your attitude. Yeah. I like how people say that there's nowhere to hide on the mats or, or the mats reveal who you really are. Yeah. When you're beat up, when you're tired, when, when you don't have any of your material possessions, everybody taps. You, you might have in your head that you, you're very good at what you do in your profession or you're a big tough guy. Everybody's going to tap. I think it's a great uh, level up. And there's no way to get good at this. If you want to achieve anything in your life, it takes thousands of hours. Yeah, Whatever your chosen craft is, whatever your chosen profession is. And I think that if you're willing to apply yourself to really be a student of the game, to, to study whatever your chosen field is, have an open mind and the right attitude, uh, both jiu-jitsu and life can be very fulfilling. That's, that's how I think the jiu-jitsu relates to life. So when did you get involved with motivational speaking? Um, it, it started when I, when I used to do swimming. Yeah? Um, it came about very naturally. So how, how I got into swimming was a bit of a fluke. I used to swim just for general fitness, just for cardio, because I can't run, I can't go on treadmills, I can't do a lot of that stuff. So I used to just go to the pool, jump in and do some laps. And what I normally do is I, I take off my prosthetic leg and I leave it by the side of the pool, I jump in, I do my laps. But one day when I hopped out of the pool, there was this old guy sitting by my prosthetic leg. And... I normally have my guard up when I walk around. A lot of people approach me in the street, wherever I am, and they're curious about my disability. So a lot of people want to talk to me about my disability. It's interesting. When I come with quite a few people, it happens almost every day, stop me in the streets and they think I'm, I'm in the military. Thank you for your service, sir. Like, thank you. But... Guys, I'm, I'm not a soldier yet, yeah, but, but thank you. Yeah. So 
this guy was waiting by my leg and he's like, Hey, um, I don't know if you know, but you're, you're very fast. Yeah? Have you ever had any training with like a, a Paralympic team or anything? I said, no. I said, well, this is the number for one of the Australian coaches. I think you should go and uh, do a time trial with him. Let him have a look at you. So, okay. Again, it took me a couple of months to, to build up the courage to call this guy and see. I went for a time trial and uh, he gave me two bits of feedback. He said, all right, the bad news is that was probably the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, That's tough. He goes, but the good news is you're very fast. Like I, that time probably gets you top 20 in the world. I think you should move out here and start training with me. Six months later, we got the world record. Yeah, 100 meter butterfly. We did that in Melbourne. It was 2008. That Beautiful. totally transformed my life. Yeah. So with that, people got very interested in my story. Yeah, I think it's natural when I talk to kids, when I talk to adults and people ask, what do you do? Oh, I swim and I do this. Oh, yeah, you any good? Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of titles, you know, done this and then I'm pretty fast. To see people's reactions is quite funny. They're like, you, 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 you're very fast. I'm like, yeah, I'm very fast. I'm like, wow. And then they start to ask, so how did you use your arm? And, sorry, how did you lose your arm and leg? And then you still swim and you still do this stuff. Like, oh, my hat's off to you. Like, thank you for sharing. Yeah. I'm going to share with my family and friends. And, you know, hopefully they can get something out of your story. So I, I met some, some members of the Australian team that also used to do motivational speaking just to pick up um, extra money on the side to help them with travel and expenses and things. And they kind of took me along with them to share my story. And it kind of took off from them. Right on. And now, how was that uh, the mindset when you start to compete? You know, when you start looking, you moved and start to go in. How was your mindset going into competition? Um, first of all, I'm I'm very competitive. It's 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 very natural for me to be competitive. Um, if I do anything, I want to do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. Um, Often when I think about my disability, when I think about my accident, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with my accident and the stuff that's happened to me. So I actually get a lot of strength. I get a lot of motivation from the accident and from the, the events surrounding it. So let me, let me explain, please. Um, I was seven years old, and one day after school, I'm playing with my brother on the, on the train tracks, and... I thought it'd be a good idea to jump on top of a moving train, all right? When I looked around, my brother wasn't with me, and I thought, I'm going to be in trouble if he goes home and he, you know, I'm not there. My mom's going to be really upset. So I tried to jump off the train while it was moving. Unfortunately, my clothes caught on the train and pulled me underneath the wheels of the train. The train trapped my right leg first, and as it was pulling my leg under the wheels, I realized that my head's going to go under there soon. So in order to free my right leg, I needed to reach across my body and try to free my leg. That's when it got my left arm. Um, it was a very, very tough time for my, my family. My brother, who was six years old at the time, uh, found me and he ran into the nearby fields to call some of the farmers. They wrapped me in blankets, took me to a nearby house where the ambulance was waiting for me. They took me off to the hospital and that's where I, I passed out. I woke up three days later. Um, 
whenever I'm feeling low, whenever I'm feeling like uh, I don't have any motivation, I don't just think about how that affected me. I think about what that was like for my brother. To be a six-year-old and find your brother lying on the train tracks, and it was a, it was a horrible mess. Yeah, um, there was a lot of blood. Um, to see that kind of thing, if my brother had been a little bit slower, I wouldn't be with you today. Um, I often think about my mother. My mother had me when she was 19 years old. So when the accident happened, she was a 27-year-old woman. Sorry. She was 26. So she had two kids, age six and seven. Her eldest son has just had a, a horrific accident. Um, she had split with my father a few years before. She was already working two jobs to try and support us, put us through school. And now she had to deal with all the medical expenses, all the stress. Um, I often think of it like this. My family has gone through too much and they supported me so well over the years. But now that they've got me to where I am, where I get to compete, swimming or jiu-jitsu, the competition seems almost trivial. And I, I don't want to say that in a, in a disrespectful way, but I think you learn a lot about somebody when you examine their relationship with fear. Yeah, I'm lucky I'm, I'm the program director at the jiu-jitsu school that I train at. You know, I love working with jiu-jitsu. And when people say that they're scared to compete, all right, let's break this down in a logical way. What are you actually scared of? Are you worried you're going to get hurt? Well, guess what? If you get put in a dangerous position, please tap. I don't want you to hurt yourself. I think most people that go into competition are scared of performance anxiety. Now, my point of view might be a little bit more extreme because my, my circumstances are a bit more extreme. But I really think like this. If you came to me and said, Sean, I'm about to go into a big tournament, I'm stressing out, well, have you prepared properly? Yeah. Have you been doing your, have you been training consistently? Have your, have your training sessions been quality training sessions? Have we, we been working your strengths, the positions that you're good at, the submissions that you're good at? your takedowns, your guard passes, and have you been working the stuff that you're not good at, right? It's my goal as one of the coaches to make you a more complete athlete. But how do you deal with fear? Do you face it? Do you bury your head in the sand and just wish it wasn't there? Maybe we can do some mental exercises. Like, do you really think in five years' time, with all the stuff that's going to happen in your life, you're going to be thinking about that competition back in 2019? It's not going to matter. I think too many people go into training and go into competition with an insane amount of pressure on themselves to perform. It's not supposed to be like that. One of the things why I, I love jujitsu, and there's a couple of hundred people that train at my gym, but most gyms only have five to 10% of them that are going to compete actively, regularly, and are going to compete on the world stage. Maybe we put too much of an emphasis on winning. As if you go out there and get caught in a triangle or an armbar, if you lose by rest decision or by two points, does that really define who you are? And if you base your self-worth on, on the outcome of a jiu-jitsu match, maybe we're not preparing you well at all. So I hope that's food for thought. I hope you can take that away and think about it. But it's not supposed to be that, that, you know, that stressful. Go out there and have fun. Yeah? And if you approach competitions in that way, um, I think that that's the mindset that leads to the most growth. If you go out there, the guy takes you down, passes your guard, and catches you in an armbar, 
now you have the blueprint for exactly what you need to work on. He took you down, so we need to work your takedown defense. He passed your guard very easily. We need to work on your guard retention, right? We need to work on your defense from the bottom in mount, and then we need to work your arm bar escapes, right? I see you back in the gym. Sometimes a loss is the best thing that we need, yeah? We always say that we learn more from our losses. Some guys win, and then we don't see them at the academy for one week or something. They disappear, they go eat pizza and party and whatever else, yeah? But when you lose, you can't wait to be on the mats, yeah? And make yourself better. Loved everything that you said because that's a, a core belief of the BJJ Metal Coach program, you know, all that. And I was just having a conversation right now. I just got back from my school. And basically, I, I talk about this daily with students or with people in general here in the, in the podcast for people who have been listening to all 76 episodes so far. Props to listen to all of them. So probably heard me talking about this, the, the concept that, yes, jiu-jitsu is an incredible personal development tool. You do not need competitions to get the benefits of jiu-jitsu period however if you want to amplify the power of this tool you get involved with a competition because some of the things some of the things that you'll be able to face in an under pressure situation and dealing with you know we're talking your fears anxieties and the emotional growth that you're going to have it's priceless you cannot put a, a price tag on that so that is the philosophy um, I'll tell you what, Sean, could I have this conversation with you in my mid twenties? Absolutely not. <laughs> it was my, my mind was just like, win, outcome. I have to win performance anxiety. You know what I mean? That's, that's what I knew back then right. until we got older and studying the mental coaching, getting involved with this and that started to flip for me. So I feel that my first 20 years of jujitsu, it was like very outcome driven as far as competition and then my last 10 years came more like, wait a minute, let me reevaluate what I'm doing here. And it became more of the challenge of really trying the emotional challenge. And that's what I do my best to inspire people to compete at the school. At, at, my, at my level, let's say at this point in my life at 45, I already went through the phase of building the next uh, adult black belt world champion. But now I just want to inspire people to compete. Like, even if it's just once, so you can feel that you understand that, like, man, going in, having the preparation, having the focus, and dealing with the emotional growth. Because I tell you what, and this is not only for you, Sean, but anyone that is listening right now, let's say some people maybe, maybe they never competed before, which is okay. But if you've been training for a decent amount of time and, and you have to compare as far as growth goes, imagine all this time that you've been training but only training, you never competed. Good, you're gonna, you're gonna be confident, you're gonna in, in, be uh, understanding the jujitsu, the technique, being shaped, all that kind of stuff. Now imagine um, all this time, but you had competition in, in the mix. The emotional growth, it's so amplified that that's the part that people miss. And even last year, which was inspired by my, my coach, uh, that did years ago and I did in my academy too, I got rid of all the trophies on my academy. Everything that I had, I got rid of everything. And I have none of my medals on the wall. I have no trophies in, a, in the wall of the academy. When we win trophy, we just choose kind of like the standout of the team and then we'll give the trophy to them. 
not necessarily someone who won. I like it that. Be, it could be someone who lost, but just yeah. something that someone over, overcame something like, man, some lady had a car accident a few months later. She competed, won a, won a match, then lost. Man, here, not because she won, but she put all the work and gave it. So uh, it's fantastic. just a different approach. You know, but I, uh, because right now it's not my motivation and, and I feel uh, maybe not everyone's going to agree with what I'm saying or some of the coaches. And again, I've been there before. I understand. But sometimes coaches get too caught up in the results of the team and they forget about the goals of the students. Why are the students even competing? Like, you know, have to compete because you need to win to get a trophy. So we'll beat the guys. So we're number one. You know, I've been there. You know, so I cannot judge anyone. At one point, I did have this kind of mindset. And as you get older, more emotional, mature, per se, you start to reevaluate things and like, what is it going to change in my life? You know, the, the extra trophy here on my wall, nothing. But how much difference can make in a person's life, you know, that experience of competing. Right. I think like this, and, and let me add to it. Um, I had the exact same attitude when I was in my 20s. Yeah. I wanted to be the best. Um, But I also realize now, and it comes with experience and maturity, like you said, you can't keep that up. You understand? I'm I'm in my late 30s now. Uh, You mentioned you were 45. Um, Everybody that's been on the mats for more than five years has some kind of injury that's kept them out of the game for a while. I get a lot of inspiration from a lot of the older guys in our gym. If you think you're still going to be having 10 minute wars deep into your forties, fifties, sixties, I mean, I think grandmaster Carlos Gracie senior was 94 when he passed. Mm-hmm. I think grandmaster Elio was 97. If you think you're going to be having those wars at that age, you're dreaming. <laughs> Delusional. Right? Yeah. Right. And if, like I said before, if, if the only reason that you turn up to the mats is to win, Maybe you need to examine your motives and and your ego, right? Um, I understand that a big part of jiu-jitsu is fitness. You need to be physically fit in order to to excel. But a large part of it also is health. Far too many people overtrain, right? There's so many benefits. I know it's funny. I didn't hang out with with Brazilians until I I came to a jiu-jitsu gym. But the hezanya, the the chat mm-hmm. that you have after, you know how many people come to jujitsu gyms because they come from another country. But the environment is so welcoming. You start to have these chats. What do you do? You're a doctor. Oh, cool. What do you do? You're a lawyer. What do you do? Oh, man, I, I work at that restaurant down there. Um, it's hard to kind of approach people on the street and have exactly. deep conversations with them. But there's there's the bonds that you create on the mats. After somebody sweat all over you and, you know, they've beaten you up for 10 minutes and caught your arm or caught your back or something, you've shared something. I like to, to say, and a few people have said this before, you really get to know somebody. Yeah? There's, there's an element of trust in knowing that this guy's going to look after me. Right? If I tap, you have to let go, and the same works with me. Um, so, yeah, I thought that's very interesting what you said. I just wanted to add that, that mm-hmm. bit, yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial career as a speaker. So what did you say it's some of the struggles as an entrepreneur, as a speaker, maybe some of the challenges that you've been going through to try to understand more about even the business of speaking? So what did you say is some of the struggles? 
And what did you um, learn from it? Maybe like if you had a struggle that you actually you learned from and you grew from it. Um, for me, it, it was it was hard for me to um, even define myself as an entrepreneur. Um, motivational speaking is a weird one. Yeah. Um, when you share your story and the feedback that I get from a lot of people, it's like, wow, your story is amazing. Like I'll think about you when I have uh, hard times, but a lot of people don't see the value. I think a lot, a lot of motivational speakers say this, sure. My story is, is not something that you come across every day, but how many people are actually going to use it? Mm -hmm. Right. There's, there's hundreds of motivational thousands of motivational speakers in the world, but you might hear my story today and it's Wednesday in Arizona. And you might think of it about it for a week or two, but then you're just going to slip back into your old habits. Right. I'm very lucky to be a part of Gracie Bar, and my, my instructor is very supportive. And, and a lot of the guys that he grew up with, a lot of the guys in jujitsu reach out to me and then tell me that they've got something from my story and everything. But when it comes to actually getting paid for it, it's not easy. Mm, yep. But I embrace that. It's, it's not supposed to be easy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I, I consider myself very fortunate to be able to do what I do. Yeah. Um, when I look at some of my friends and, you know, on the weekend, people are like the weekends are far too short huh? and I have to go back to work on Monday morning. I'm one of those guys that I can't wait to go back to work. I love what I do. Yeah. For free seven days a week. And I still love to be there. I think something that jujitsu has helped me with is um, self-awareness. Yeah, you really, really have to know yourself. I think you have to know your, your purpose, what you're trying to achieve, but also you have to know your value, right? <laughs> Initially, when I was getting into it, um, you have to start somewhere and you need to study all the people that have come before you, all the great motivational speakers, the, the Tony Robbinses, the uh, Eric Thomases. Um, and you need time to really dedicate yourself to your craft. I compare it to, um, it's art. I compare it to a songwriting or ma making music process, or I compare it to comedians, right? You have to lock yourself away in your room, write down your ideas, and then try and figure out how to reach your audience. What are you, what are you trying to achieve, right? you have to give a certain amount of free stuff away, right? Absolutely. Just to get yourself out there. Public speaking is probably one of the hardest things. I think most people are afraid of public speaking. Mm -hmm. It's in the top five, you know, biggest fears, heights, public speaking, like spiders, whatever it is, because it's very, very hard to get up in front of a group of people who you don't know and be vulnerable. Yeah. You don't know what their reactions are like. You don't know what you're going to be like. Right? I might be nervous. My voice might shake. I might miss certain points. Again, you need to, to practice your craft. Then it's whether or not people are willing to pay you. Right? Knowing your value is something Well, all right, I'll, I'll do a couple to work my delivery. I often say like you could tell the funniest joke in the world, but if your delivery is off, it's not funny. Right? Absolutely. But you have to have some faith in what you do too. Like I know a lot of people take something positive away from my story my intentions are good right 
I'm very authentic um, when I talk to people. A lot of people give me that feedback because because it's it's real. It's mine. Yeah, I'm looking to make make a connection, and I'm not sharing my story so that you feel sorry for me or oh, give you some money, please. Yeah. No, no, it's not that at all. I'm hoping that you can take this and use this. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons for my success. I was listening to one of my favorite motivational speakers, uh, Les Brown. So I always mention uh-huh. him once in a while. He, he is incredible. He's phenomenal. Yeah, so I was listening to him to once. I don't know if this is some type. I mean, the numbers sound accurate, but I don't know if it was like a specific study. But he talks about his experience of doing exactly what he's saying. You go there and you inspire people. And then people, he say like 80% of people in the first week, they like, yeah, woo, I'm motivated. And they get back in the same patterns in a week. And then they say like 15% take something and do something with it. You know, and they're like, cool. Yeah, I got him. Cool. Give a little boost. Mm-hmm. And 5% take to another level, which I don't think it's five. I think it's less. So do I. Know? I think it's more like 2% maybe pushing three, you know, to really like, man, I like it. Let me read about this here. Let me study. Let me do a course. You know, it's, it's where to see. And that's one thing that I'm, uh, I feel that I, I'm in the smaller group just because I got so addicted to personal development, personal growth that I'm like, I want to learn more. I want to learn more about this, but not just learning too, Sean. It's like learning and executing right. because some people just go to seminars. They do this, they do conventions, they do all kinds of stuff, but they don't utilize and execute on like everything that they're learning. So it's very important too for people to get the information, whatever information you have, or have an incredible book that you feel that it can benefit in your life if you do implement certain things. Yes. Go ahead and do it. That's right. Yeah. So what did you say? Let's say for someone right now, like listen to us and let's say it's a part of your presentation when you're doing a, a speaking engagement. And what kind of message would you give to an entrepreneur, someone that is possibly still early in the beginning? We have a lot of experienced people that are listening to the podcast. We have a lot of people who are beginners, entrepreneurs, or they like doing on the side. Some people are still in transition, trying to get, you know, their own thing. So let's say, what, what would you like to say to young entrepreneurs? Let's say, what message you to give to them in your presentation that you could give to them now? Okay, my, my message, and I think it's universal, it applies to jiu-jitsu athletes, it applies to entrepreneurs, is to really define what you want, first of all, right? If you want to be a black belt world champion, cool. But then you have to set up your lifestyle and you have to, you have to practice the habits that are going to reward you, right? Um, I don't know if you know who Steve Harvey is. I saw this the other day. Steve Harvey is a, a comedian. I think he hosts something like the Family Feud or something. I saw it on Instagram and he said something like, rich people don't sleep eight hours a day. And he gave the example that if you play the stock market and you live on the West coast of the USA, you cannot sleep in until 8 a.m. Because it's already 11 a.m. in the morning in New York. The stock market's been open for two hours. 
and people have been making decisions that affect your life when you were asleep. Right? True. If you want to be an entrepreneur, I don't think a lot of people know how much work goes into running a jiu-jitsu school, goes into running a cafe. They only see the finished, polished product, right? You've, you've achieved some, some important titles in your life, yeah? How many thousands of hours did you put in? How many days did you go to training that you didn't feel like doing? How many personal stuff came up? You may have missed a family member's birthday. You may have missed commitments and all. But the sacrifice is all part of what makes us successful in the end, right? Um, I think about stuff like that. Um, you really have to study. You really have to apply yourself. You really have to structure your day um, to make sure you're getting the best results. And you need to make things a priority, right? We have this poster that hangs up in our gym. I think it says something like... Um, 10 things that require zero talent. Yeah. Excuse me one second. Let me have a look at this. And it's something like turning up on time, making an effort, um, having a positive attitude, um, using good body language. Yeah. All that stuff. I see some, some athletes, and I think about this too. Sometimes it's not the, the how much you're actually training. I speak to some athletes and they say they train three to four hours a day. So, okay, that's about 21 hours a week, right? But how much are you actually resting? How much of the mental training are you actually doing? Are they quality sessions or are you just turning up and just wearing your body down to the point where you, you when you go to a big fight at a big competition, you don't have the energy to fight hard, right? I'm a huge fan of people like Kobe Bryant, right? I listen to a lot of his documentaries. I get a lot of inspiration uh, from him. And he talks about when he was a young man, his dad used to play in the NBA and then they sent his family to Italy to play basketball. And he, by his own admission, he wasn't a great uh, basketball player when he was a teenager, right? He said, I may have had a good jump shot with my right hand, but some, day, some games, my dad would say, we're only going to use your left hand. Today, we're only going to practice the stuff that you're not good at. And he makes the comment that a lot of people that were better, were better basketball players than him when they were 12, 13, by the time they all reached 16, he was so much more well-rounded because he developed his game with his non-dominant hand, right? If there's 168 hours in the week, how much time are you really dedicated to getting good at what you set your, your mind to do, whether it's business, whether it's jujitsu, yeah. Um, I like to think of myself as a very organized person, yeah. The, the things that are important for me is my, my training, my, my business, how am I gonna feed my family? But you also need to have a balance and you need to make time for what's important too, right? I need to spend time with my girlfriend. Yeah? I need to make time to call my father. I need to make time to call my mom, yeah. And then I go from there. But I think a lot of people don't actually write it down. They don't chart things. And then it, you kind of just coast along through life and it gets lost. Yeah. So I think making, writing down all the things that are important and then setting up your daily routines and your habits to make sure that you actually execute, to use your word, that's, that's been a huge thing for me. Yeah. And that would go straight to my next question of what it's something like one high performance habit that you have daily. So that's one right there, planning, you know, prioritizing your day. Anything else that um, 
comes to your mind? Um, this is a difficult one for me. I, I would probably say two things if I can. The first one would be planning, right? I, I like to know in advance what I'm going to be doing so I can have my schedule and make sure I'm in the right frame of mind to do all the necessary tasks. The other one that's really helped me in the last couple of years is meditation. So yes, I know sir. it might not be for, for everybody, right? But even if it's three to five minutes a day, I go somewhere, a nice quiet place, I close my eyes and I think of nothing but my breathing. Sometimes for me, it helps to wipe the slate clean. Yeah? It changes my perspective. I need a little bit of peace before I go back into the madness. Yeah, meditation is something that I picked up a few years ago and I do a lot of that too. And sometimes some people call those short one transitional meditations. You know, sometimes I'm at the school, I'm just busy doing all kinds of stuff and I go to the bathroom you know, and then I'm like, let me just breathe here for one minute. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of like just to center, get situated and then like, and then kind of go back in. One of the things that this habit of breathing, I put, uh, I have mentioned in podcast too, some, uh, it's called intentional cues. You put alarm in your phone. So I have for different messages and one of them in the afternoon, I put in the middle, it's 2.30 Usually around that, my phone, uh, just the alarm goes off and it's just, uh, it just say, did you breathe today? Which is just kind of like, a, of course, everybody like take, stop, whatever you're doing right now, just like, or if I'm driving, just be aware. Sometimes you're driving and just kind of autopilot or not even know right. what you're doing. And then it kind of like helps me like, yeah, I'm, dude, I'm not centered at all, not focused at all, not present. And that helps me to bring back. So having those little intentional cues helping us to to bring back, you know, especially related to breathing. And regarding like to yeah, regarding to prioritizing and which goes in with it helps our productivity. Fact, you know what I mean? Especially nowadays with people getting caught so much of like the distraction of the phones and social media and stuff like that. You know, it's uh it's important to prioritize things. And I have, a, I, go, I have my morning routine also and have a few questions and things that I go through. And, and right at the beginning of the day, I have, I have my whiteboard and I write some stuff and, and I reflect on what is my mission of the, the day? Like, what do, I have to, what do I have to accomplish today that's going to progress in my life? There's right. one thing that needs to be done. You know, and very often we end up pushing that towards the end of like something uncomfortable or pain in the butt or like, uh, do I really have to do this? Or like, uh, kind of yes, you know, if it's something that it's important. So I always make sure that I reflect, that helps me a lot. And even sometimes something that I know that is uncomfortable, like I got to find a way to put this right at the beginning of the day. So I'm, you know, I know that I, if this, at least one thing, if this is done, I'm good. If anything else doesn't happen, no problem. But this is like the core thing of the day. So that's, I think it's a good little hack for people to just kind of start in the day thinking, you know, so it's not like you said, you know, you wake up and you're trying to wondering like, all right, what I'm doing today. And then just kind of like, you know, going with the flow. And that's when you end up not having a productive day, especially right. if you are an entrepreneur. Right. I think that's very interesting. Uh, I heard this not too long ago. People often confuse busy and productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can make myself busy with a lot of other things, but yeah, if absolutely. that means like you know, getting lost on YouTube or you know, checking all these things on Instagram, that has nothing to do with me actually accomplishing what I set out to do. Very interesting. Yeah, 
So what did you say is the best advice that you've ever received? Um, this is a tough one. I'm going to give you, you two examples. My mom, my mom is a, someone I look up to a lot in my life. And she was always, through all the stuff that's happened to me in my life, she was always like, you need to, you need to find your gift. Yeah, everyone has gifts. You need to find your gifts and you need to figure out how you get paid for, for it. Yeah. If you can do that, you know, when people say I've never worked a day in my life because it's easy to get out of bed. It's easy to get to work early or stay late when you're doing what you love to do and what you're naturally inclined to do. Right. Once you find that, I think then you get a lot of fulfillment out of life for using your gift to help other people. Absolutely. Right? Once you get enough money to meet your basic needs and wants, yeah, um, the more you can help other people, it's very, very satisfying. Yeah. Um, the other one that I like, actually, Master Carlos Gracie Jr., he says something along the lines of discipline and consistency. Everything he achieved in his life is through the discipline and consistency. And for me, it's very simple. It's very to the point. Yeah, But if you can follow that and you can actually execute on that, it's amazing uh, the results you can get. Um, two things. One, about Carlos Gracie Jr. We have a few Gracie Baja people here, uh, Flavio Dracolino, and I always mention um, Carlos Gracie Jr. is one of the guys that I look up to, of course, I'm, even though from a different team. But mm -hmm. I always say as an, as an entrepreneur, as a visionary, that's a, a person that really inspired me and we have the – jiu-jitsu competition scene in arizona uh, it's big of course been doing this for 20 years but i mean it's all inspired in ibjjf the format that he developed and what i appreciate and i think a lot of people don't appreciate it and, and that's okay it's just opinions but right i i even competed in the very first world in 96 so i remember seeing the very first brazilian national so mm -hmm. being able to see like the progression or how was it, you know, refs, refing, you know, just competitors that it did just have their gi pants and then just like, hey, man, we need a ref here, jump in here. And someone's just there to help out, you know what I mean? Yeah. Next thing, you know, like the tournament stopped because there's no refs, you know, like someone like, hey, can you help out, you know, to get to a point right. that it's like professional now. So uh, a lot of people didn't see that. So I think they, they just see right now, like, wow, they make a lot of money. Well, it's a company. You know, and it's a business. And no one asked him how much he was making in 1995 when he was making the, the Pan Ams in, at the same venue in California. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's now, it's, now it's easy to criticize when they're like, oh, they have 3,000 competitors. But like, how much did he make when they have 150 people on that same gymnasium? You know, so people uh, don't see that. Right. I think, I think uh, in the future, they're probably going to look back at a lot of what uh, Master Kawas has achieved and really recognize his contribution to, to not just jiu-jitsu, but to the martial arts. Yeah. Just off the top of my head, when I think about the IBJJF, I think about Gracie Magazine, I think Gracie Bar now has over 800 schools around the world. Yeah. Like, okay, any, any big project that you're going to do, anything that you pour your heart and soul into, people are going to have negative things to say. But the fact is this, if, if, and I think it's a fascinating story. I think if Master Carlos can start one gym in a neighborhood in Rio 
and he sends all his top students around the world. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be doing jujitsu. We wouldn't be talking to you today, but not just Master Carlos. If you, if you look at some of the people who he surrounds himself with, uh, whether it's Professor Flavio Almeida, Professor Master Feitosa, Professor um, Marco Pupiu, they all have similar habits. They all have similar traits, right? They're all phenomenal at jujitsu, right? They, 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 they seem to organize their lives um, in the way that we talked about with priorities, yeah? They seem to have that work-life balance down. Yeah, um, they all live very healthy and active lifestyles, and in terms of business, they're doing a lot of stuff that no one's done before in Jiu-Jitsu. So for me, not just them, but my my teacher, yeah, he's the regional director for the Oceania region. Not only is he a fourth degree black belt, but he looks after the gym. He looked after uh, all the Gracie Bar development in the region. Yeah, uh, from the sales, he's a man who wears many hats. Right, and it's impossible to do that without uh, having a routine, without having a schedule, but also being committed to a mission uh, of spreading jujitsu for everyone. I think we all have this shared vision where we really believe that people's lifestyles transform for the better when they practice jujitsu. Right? So, very, very interesting conversation. And one thing that I mentioned to some some people again, not everyone maybe resonate with this, but I, I came from Brazil, so I've been living here for 20 years. I'm a citizen now. I got my my visa, my eventually my work visa, uh, the O-1 visa, because of the titles that I got from IBJJF. And if they weren't promoting tournaments, who would it be promoting? You know, oh, that's would, fantastic. I never quite thought it, about it from that angle before. Oh yeah, I already thought about this years ago because that uh-huh. a lot of the uh again, I don't want to rub people the wrong way. Okay, people have their perceptions, but mm. I feel that people forget that you know, you got your green card now and you got your your visa. Someone plant the seed for you to right. make a living with jiu-jitsu now. And again, Probably there will be some people right now just pausing and stopping the. the <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna skip this section. Like, oh, Gustavo, you know. But again, it's just it's just my opinion. It doesn't make right. truth. It doesn't mean right or wrong. It's just how I feel about it. That I am definitely grateful for the opportunity. That yes, I did pay the price. That I got. I chose to get involved with competition. That helped me to give me titles that apply. And then they're like, okay. I guess this guy's qualified according to this organization. And now I'm able to live my gift that we talk about. And I want to get back to what you said earlier about your, your mom's advice of finding your gift and find a way to get paid because that's what I did. And I've, that's what I've been doing. And I chose that and was a teenager, but in my mind, like this is what I'm doing for a living. I'm going to do it and I'll find a way. And and this is a great advice for everyone, man, uh, all the listeners now that everyone, every single one, I truly believe that that has a gift, you know, and your job is to, to, to find out, find out what that is. There is a, do you are familiar with the Wayne Dyer? No. Wayne Dyer, he passed maybe in 2012. I highly recommend it. I'll send you some links. I probably read uh, maybe like six of his books or something. Incredible incredible speaker uh learn a lot from him and uh, uh it's very nice to see he wrote like 
40 books or something like that. I don't know. Like he wrote a lot of books, but it was very nice to see the transition of his transformation from just mind to getting to a spiritual side of it, like his evolution. It was very nice to, to see this. So once in a while, I always listen to some of his uh, podcast, uh, uh, his, uh, his audiobooks, and there's tons of stuff on, on YouTube. But he has this quote that I have it on my phone. Matter of fact, it's the last alarm of the day for me, which is 1030 at night that say, don't die with your music in you. So this is just a reminder. And as a reminder to everyone that you, everyone has a music to play. Everyone has this, this gift. And it's sad that most of the population die with their music inside of them. You know what I'm saying? And it's uh, because a lot of people, some people just don't know what their music is. That's okay. You know, you, you maybe haven't found it yet, but it's bad when it's uh, bad. But I mean, it's such a waste when you know what a music is, but you're choosing not to play, even though you wish you were playing, right. you know? So right. I started to every time this time I started, I have this in my alarm for many years. And, and every time I would just reflect into what is my music and uh, so I stayed for a while, always like sitting because I've always been an entrepreneur with a lot of different things. I'm always like trying to like feeling that I need to be doing one thing when I'm like everything is related uh, to things that I do. And then I finally realized that, man, what if I'm not just playing my, I don't have to play music. I have an album that have different music, you know what I mean? But all the, there is a theme for the album. And as long as everything's aligned with my vision with my values and yeah, I can play different music, but align with the same album, which is basically to inspire, impact and improve people's lives in some way. And the podcast is one way to do it. My Academy is one, the events with tournaments, one, the nonprofit organization, Jiu-Jitsu tribe is one. So things that I do, everything related, they align with that. If they're not, I don't mess with it. So The point is, I don't, I don't say this for all the listeners trying to, to impress you with uh, all the stuff that I do. It's just to convey to you that you also have music to play. And it's your job, it's your duty to find. And when you find, make sure that execute, go, go for it and do it. And again, find a way to get paid, as your mom said. And that, man, that is a... That is the great thing to be able to do what you love and get paid. I cannot even imagine working with something that I don't like. I just can't. At some point, I tell you that. At some point, not only me, but even you, uh, the listener. At some point, I had to do things that I didn't want to. And when I moved to the U.S., I wasn't teaching jujitsu. I was just working in construction. You know, it's just I came from 1998 winning as uh, world as a brown belt to 1999 and the next world I was working in construction, not even training. That is not a common thing. But however, I sacrificed my competition career because I said, no, I want to have a school. My goal wasn't to be, I was like, I want to be a world champion. When I trained, before I, I started training in 89, there's no world championship, you know. So when it happened in 96, I thought, oh, that's pretty cool, worlds, whatever. But I mean, never being my, necessarily my goal. and that just gave me um, just gave an opportunity to just yeah keep keep going um, learning more and then I figured out okay if I if I can get maybe titles this can help me with them and it did it really did help me to get my uh, my visa and everything 
you know so i feel that people just need to really uh man just think about the music you have a music inside of you and it just gotta find it play it and be able to to work with something so at some point there's another are you familiar with jim rome yes yeah so he's incredible he's one of my favorite speakers and i this quote i said many times here in the podcast that work full-time you're in your living part-time you're in your dream and one day with dedication sacrifice and discipline your part-time will become the full-time you know so there's a lot of people all the and a lot of the listeners right now doing that they doing right. the regular job just to pay the bills to survive and doing their their side gig that hopefully the side gig becomes you know their main thing and that did for me and it did for a lot of people so i think this is a uh, just make sure that a uh, First, they need to find the gift. Like you said, I think it was a great, um, great advice. Even better, how to get paid. Let me, let me add something to that. Uh, mm-hmm. so my, my mom also said, once you've gotten paid, now you have to figure out how your gift can benefit other people. Mm-hmm. To, touch, to touch on a little bit about what you're Beautiful. saying, I think in the future, People will use jujitsu as a case study, and I see a couple of parallels with the surf industry. 40, 50 years ago, surfing wasn't a profession. Surfing was a hobby. Yeah. You understand? Surfing was something that you did on the weekends. Some professional surfers get insane amounts of money now yep. to win a surf competition. It's a billion dollar industry. Right? If you're one of the top athletes in the surf industry, you can command a very, very good amount of money to travel the world live your passion. If a sponsor jumps on board and you wear their t-shirts or whatever it is, you can make a very good living. I think the same with the skate industry, right? Um, There's thousands of kids all across this country and around the world, right? What about hip hop? Whoever could have thought that people rhyming and expressing their ideas in a certain format would be a multi-billion dollar industry in entertainment, right? But these all started off as ideas. And you have kids all across the world, right, um, that sit there and they're reading dictionaries and they're trying to understand words and trying to develop their cadence and their musical abilities. Some people can't do music at all. They're horrible. They're horrible. But even though they can't hold a pitch or they can't hit a certain note or whatever, they sing just because they love to sing. Yeah. Sometimes I often think jiu-jitsu is like that. You don't need to be a black belt world champion to enjoy going to jiu-jitsu one 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 thing that i've always found fascinating about jiu-jitsu and like i said in my 20s i was so focused on achieving something right it was very important for me to prove to myself that i could do this for swimming for jiu-jitsu for whatever it was whether it was to cater to my ego whether it's to satisfy something deep inside myself anyway it was that i wish everybody could experience what it's like to hear like representing Sean Fong and the stadium go up. Yeah, like I'll carry those memories with me for, for the rest of my life. But now I'm using uh, a lot of the skills from jiu-jitsu, from swimming, from, from my relationships to help benefit other people's lives. Right? So I'm coaching more and more at the gym. When a seven-year-old girl who's gone in a competition before and she's lost, yeah, the other person mounted her and just held her down. And she feels the fear. She's claustrophobic and she goes away. 
and then she comes in, she wants to do a couple of private lessons with you, and you work the takedowns, you work the guard bosses, you work the arm bars, you, you help them overcome their fears, right? And you see them actually go to a competition and, and pull it off, man, you feel like electric, right? When somebody says, Gustavo, I'm a better person because of you. The fact that you're in my life makes my life better and you help me achieve my goals. If you can find your gift and use it to benefit other people, man, there's, there's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of fulfillment that comes from that. That's almost better than winning medals. Absolutely. Right? And then for me, I'm, I'm lucky to have found it as, as young as I did. Right. And, and this is something that I'm very excited about moving forward. Now, what advice would you give to the younger Sean when you got involved with motivational speaking? Not that you want anything different, but you know, with your experience right now, if you could go back and say, hey, Sean, being here from the future, uh, maybe it was, I don't know, when you did your first speaking engagement, maybe 10 years ago, I, I don't know, but you can go back there and give him a little advice what that would be. Um, my advice to my younger self probably would be um, not so much for just motivational speaking, but for jujitsu, for swimming, for everything else, is try not to take things so seriously. Yeah, try not to take things so seriously. I, I consider myself a, a somewhat extreme person, right? I'm either hot or cold. I, I don't like to do projects if I feel I can't give it the, the proper amount of time and energy that it needs, yeah? And I don't work well with people who I feel don't commit to certain projects but pretend as if they do, yeah? I need to learn to relax a little bit. I need to learn to like, guys, not everybody develops at the rate I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm more mature than a lot of other people, but I'm also not as mature as a lot of other people I know. Yeah, I, I, when I work with my teacher, my instructor, man, his emotional maturity sometimes makes me feel like a white belt. I'm like, wow, like I was meant to be with this person, right? He's like my guardian angel. He's, he's got my back. But, and it's funny, we talk about everything from, from jujitsu to in wealth and investments and you know how to make proper decisions that is going to like reward us well in the future um so yeah yeah it's very interesting you um <clears throat> you said that because it reminded me uh, i have a public speaking mentor since 2012 and i remember around that time i was talking with him about something i was working on a project and i think it was frustrated with something and then he goes like, Gustavo, let me tell you something. And this was in the beginning that we, he didn't even know me that way. He knew, knew me for a few months back then. But he said, like, Gustavo, let me tell you something. I can tell your clock is faster than the average person. And you need to understand, you need to be aware of that. Not everyone's going to work and function at the same speed that you do. So don't right. assume that people need to perform the same way we do like tasks or stuff like that because your clock is a little faster and that's right. okay. You know what I mean? But you need to respect other people's clocks too. So right. that was a, uh, like a great advice. And you called that, you know, no one ever maybe uh, not call me, you got call me out on that, but I wasn't even aware of that. I was like, that is true. Uh, like right away. I'm like, man, and it's very similar. That's probably to have like a, a, a similar 
advice to give to my younger self? I think it's it's also important, right? When you when you assess yourself, that you you clearly define your own strengths and weaknesses. So mm-hmm. what I wanted to say was like, in my team, in in the people that are around me, I know for example, like a lot of the admin stuff, doing spreadsheets for a couple of hours just drains my energy. I'm lucky enough to have people on my team that love to do spreadsheets. Like, ooh, ooh, let's do a spreadsheet for this mm-hmm. little task. Let's do it. It's not me. There are people on my team that love sales and they're very people oriented. They're very, my, my style is I like to kind of take a back step and, and go to somewhere quiet and write everything down. You, you, you understand? Mm-hmm. Everybody has their gifts and everybody has their flaws and knowing when to send the right people in for the right job is, is a big part of it as well. So if I, my advice to my younger self would be like, play, play to your strengths, like develop your weaknesses at the same time. Yeah. yeah. But nobody gets anything done by themselves. Right. Like it's important to surround yourself with good, positive people and your, your, you build the relationships to kind of complement what you're trying to achieve. Right. I'm not good at everything. I'll be the first one to admit that. And this guy is better at doing this thing than me and get him in there. Now, what book would you like to recommend to the listeners and why? Maybe some, I don't know, any, it's tough to say because sometimes it could be a, a personal development book, a business book, but maybe something that come, just pops up to your mind, some of like a impactful book that you read. Um, I personally get a lot out of the personal development self-help books. Um, they might be my favorite style of book to read. This one was a very, very hard one for me. I'm a huge fan of um, Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers, uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, and I'd probably recommend this book, uh, it's Tim Ferriss's Tools of Titans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I haven't I'm, listened to that one yet. Yeah. Um, he's, he's kind of interviewed and he's asked questions mm-hmm. to people who are recognized as leaders in their industry whether it be my, uh, sorry, banking and finance or strength and conditioning. Yeah. He's gone and interviewed them just to give you an insight into what, you know, their habits, their routines and what makes them tick. Yeah. Uh, if I had to recommend one book, I'd probably pick that one. Cool. Yeah. It's uh, I love Tim Ferriss, his material that for our work week, uh, uh-huh. open, open up my mind for a lot of things. Uh, uh-huh. when, whenever it came back, I don't know. I can't remember. It's 2011 or maybe it's, I, I can't remember. Four hour body as well. Yeah. Yeah. And man, that book, uh, made a lot of sense to me and a lot of different. So that book really helped me. Um, so getting close to the end of the interview for, so for people who are listening for the first time, usually what I do after the interview, I reflect on what was said and I, reflect on my personal takeaway and then I expand on I do what it's called the final thoughts. So I do an audio from five to 12 minutes, an audio to hopefully inspire, impact and improve your life in some way. And that's the tough part of my job. This year is easy. Sean is the one giving me the, all the content. So uh, I'm just cruising <laughs> here just with the conversation. So that's the easy part. Now creating content after it's a little uh, tougher because I, I really want to make sure that the content is going to impact people in some way, you know what I mean? So that's why sure. uh, I put a lot of work uh, at the end of like a five, seven minute audio can take me a few days, literally, you know, because I research and do all kinds of stuff. So 
What are you currently excited about? What's going on? Uh, I'm currently excited about teaching more. Um, I'm in the States at the moment. Uh, we had a big Grace Bar Worldwide Summit where some of the best and the brightest from the team all met in San Diego. Yeah. And it's to, to celebrate our success, but to to kind of reconfirm our values and to, to kind of examine the best practices and procedures from around the globe. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's like a big family reunion. Yeah. You get to see like, Hey, there's Braulio and the team from the UK and there's Tusa and the team from New Mexico and you know people from Chicago and all around the world. And we all meet and talk about our shared love of jujitsu and, and what we're going to do in the next couple of years as well. Um, I got to do a couple of classes in San Diego, in San Clemente, and um, it's very rewarding for me to see people take something from my story, right? Um, it might sound corny, uh, but I often say, like, uh, if it helps one person, there's somebody, there might be a kid out there in a wheelchair, or there might be a kid out there with a physical or mental disability, right? It wasn't always easy for me. When I started jujitsu. I didn't know anybody with one arm or one leg. Yeah, there's no blueprint. There's no reference point for this. And if somebody sees, well, if this guy is a double amputee can do jujitsu, I might give it a shot. Yeah, if he gets to experience all the benefits and the lifestyle changes that I did, then it's fantastic. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be going to the Brazil to Brazil for the first time. Yeah, I think I'll go to Rio, uh, Curitiba, Porto Alegre, Minas Gerais, and then back home. Nice. For me, I'm so excited because. When I was doing kickboxing Muay Thai, I mean, I'd love to go and train in, in Thailand, the spiritual home of, of Thai boxing. For me, I get to go to the spiritual home of Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah? I'd love to, to see and feel the energy in Rio. Wow, so this is the original gym where Master Carlos and all the guys came up. Yeah? And it spread from here. Um, I mentioned a little bit before that I didn't have many Brazilian friends until I joined the gym. Now, like, I'm, I count down the days until I can have Pitaya beans and rice and, you know, <laughs> i'm very excited to to travel and see samba and Faho and all all that kind of stuff i think it's such a, a beautiful culture it's it's hard for me to imagine my life without brazilians now yeah um and sharing my story um i've never i'm, I'm traveling with a couple of close friends and and they're going to help me do a couple of classes and you know i've i've never heard of any double amputee traveling to Brazil to teach and, and you know my classes are going to be translated into Portuguese so I'm, I'm very excited about that uh, and we'll see where it takes us yeah that's beautiful man and it's been a great interview Sean really enjoyed man your time appreciate your time man ah thank you so much yeah I appreciate you having me and and uh, having me on your show and uh, please guys if, if you're out there and you have any questions about my story, please don't be shy about reaching out to me. Yeah. If, if I can help anybody uh, that might be going through a slump or going through some difficult times in their lives, I'm more, more than happy. So please send us so, a message. Yeah. So how can they find you? What is the best way? Let's say. Um, I think my, my YouTube page is Sean Fong. So my name is S E A N. My surname is F O N G. Uh, my Instagram page is Sean S E A N. My surname Fong F O N G G B. Uh, it's the same on Facebook. Please reach out to me, send me a message, and uh, I will get back to you. Great. 
Thank you so much, Sean. And for all the listeners, stick around for my final thoughts. Oos. Oos. Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with Sean Fong. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram TV at Gustavo Dantas BJJ, Sean is a brown belt from Gracie Baja, an athlete, coach, and motivational speaker. I'm going to repeat part of his intro from the beginning of the interview for those who haven't listened to the interview yet. At seven years old, everyone thought Sean's life was about to end before it had even really begun. He was placed in an induced coma lying flat on a Fijian hospital bed and being read his last rites. But three days later, he woke up. Sean was left fighting for his life as a child after he fell under the wheels of a moving train. Out playing with his brother, he jumped onto the moving train before getting caught on sugarcane and sleeping underneath a carriage. His right leg was severed and his left arm was crushed and later amputated. Now 37 years old, Sean has overcome incredible odds to achieve the kind of goals in his life. He was an Australian Paralympic swimmer who set a world record in the 100-meter butterfly short course in para-swimming, and he's also a gold medalist at the Abu Dhabi World Pro of para-jiu-jitsu. If you haven't listened to this episode yet, I highly recommend it. It's a very inspirational interview. He talked about courage not being the absence of fear, but feeling the fear and doing it anyway. He shared his competition mindset, which is very aligned with the message of the BJJ Mata Coach program. He also talked about the importance of knowing your strengths and weaknesses. My takeaway from the interview came from when he talked about the best advice that he has ever received, which came from his mother. Quote, find your gift Figure out how to get paid, and you will never have to work another day in your life. Then figure out how your gift can benefit others, unquote. This advice inspired me to title this episode, Finding Your Gift. During the interview, Sean mentioned about Steve Harvey. For those who are not familiar with him, Harvey is an American comedian, actor, author, and television and radio personality who first gained fame for his observational humor and later became known for his self-help advice, especially about relationships. He's a great speaker with a lot of inspirational videos on YouTube. In one of them titled, Follow Your Gift, Not Your Passion, he talks about your gift being the one thing that you do the absolutely best with the least amount of effort. Today, I'm going to share with you the six-minute audio of Steve Harvey talking about finding your gift. Check it out. Your gift will make room for you. Now, what is your gift? It's the thing that you do the absolute best with the least amount of effort. That's your gift. Quit running away from the gift. Your gift will make room for you. Stop trying to be something you ain't gifted at. Nobody asked you to go down here and study to be a dentist, and you ain't really good at that. Quit going down to the church trying to sing. You can't sing. <laughs> now, just because they let you sing at the church, you're not finna, ain't nobody else finna go with this. Cause you know, come as you are, the Lord loveth a cheerful giver, all that. We don't apply scriptures out here. You come to the Apollo and you can't sing, we got something for your ass up there. <laughs> Period. Listen to me. All of you have this gift. Identify it. It's the thing that you do the absolute best with the least amount of effort. That's what you should be doing. You're wasting your time pursuing your passion. The Bible does not mention passion. It mentions your gift. What are you gifted at and do that? Stop tripping. 
You can do that. If you fry chicken better than everybody you know, you ought to be somewhere frying chicken. People make millions of dollars frying chicken. Popeyes, Kentucky Fried Chicken, El Pollo Loco. All they doing is making chicken. They just found a way to do it. Somebody just started making chicken. You know the story of Marie Callender's? Do you know what this woman did, man? She worked for a diner, a greasy spoon diner that was going out of business. It was her only job. She was a single mother. It was her only job. She needed that job, but the diner was going to close. So she went to the owner of the diner and said, let me bake one of my pies, people like my pies, and see if I can help you make a little money. He said, whatever, bring it in. He, she bought one pie in. They sold every slice. The next day, the people came in and asked for the pie. She had to go home and make another pie. The next day, so many people asked for the pie, she had to make four pies. Then people started saying, can I buy my own pie? She made so many pies at this store that she eventually saved her money and put a commercial oven in her house. Now all, she done made so many pies, the dude's shop, he ain't selling hamburgers no more. <laughs> all he's selling is them damn pies. That's how Marie Callender got started. Marie Callender now has over 120 restaurants. You can't go to no frozen food section without seeing Marie Callender in there. You know what she started with? A pie. One pie. The dude that, when I had hair, when I had that world famous lining with that box cut when I was Steve Hightower, Kings of Comedy, when I had that hair, the dude that cut my hair, I met him in 1986. He cut my hair for $10. I remembered him. When I got on TV, I had hired him. He came out there, he started making $300 a haircut. I paid him 10. He had been with me so many years that he was making $1,500 per haircut. I was getting my haircut four times a week for television and touring. I paid him $1,500 each time. He was making $6,000 a week. You know what he was doing? Cutting hair. That same haircut I paid $10 for in 87, this dude was cutting it now for me for $1,500. I cut my hair off. He, he... <laughs> we had to put him on suicide watch for a little while. But then let me tell you what he did. I paid him a chunk of money for being with me all these years, gave him a severance pay, told him good luck. Guess what this dude got now? He got four salons and he owned two barber colleges. You know what this dude make now? 3.6 million a year. You know what he do? He cut hair. He cut hair. He don't do nothing else. That's his gift. Friend of mine we grew up with, all he did was cut grass. He had a single blade lawnmower that he pushed. He was so good at it, he could raise the blades up and lower them. He could cut patterns in your grass. We little, I'm going, hey man, we going to swimming. Now I got to cut Miss Jackson grass. He could cut patterns in your yard. He could put your initials in your grass as a little boy. $2 for the front, $2 for the back. $4. We used to laugh at him all the time. Well, let me tell you what we laughing at now. He got a landscaping company in Cleveland. You know how much this boy making? Four million dollars a year. You know what he do? He cut grass. He got 38 trucks. 
He got all the contracts in the city, malls, corporations. And when it's snow outside, he do such a good job cutting the grass, he put plows on the front of his trucks, and he got all the snow removal contracts. This boy making $4 million a year, and you know what he do? He cut grass. I hope you already have found your gift. Possibly you figured out how to get paid and how your gift can benefit others like Sean's mom advised him. If you haven't, you need to find what your gift is and try to spend as much time doing that as possible. Remember, your gift is the one thing that you do the absolutely best with the least amount of effort. To wrap up, I would like to share with you the same Les Brown's quote I shared with you on episode 66 with Mauricio Tinguinha. Quote, The graveyard is the richest place on earth because it's here that you will find all the hopes and dreams that were never fulfilled, the books that were never written, the songs that were never sung, the inventions that were never shared, the cures that were never discovered, all because someone was too afraid to take that first step keep with the problem or determined to carry out their dream, unquote. And as the late inspirational speaker Wayne Dyer said, don't die with your music in you, which means don't die with your gift inside of you. Let the world know your gift and how it can benefit others. Oh, We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.